right. Good morning, beloved. Good to see everyone here this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Today we'll be covering uh, verses 8 through 12. I want to begin by first reading these verses with you, and then after we can look at uh, each of them in detail. Once again, we just have a wonderful text loaded with godly principles and practical applications. So let's get right into it. First Peter chapter three, starting in verse eight. And here now is the word of the living and true God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless instead. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Our uh, Declaration of Independence um, contains the uh, well-known phrase, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, uh, you know, for most people in today's society, the pursuit of happiness primarily means sin. Uh, it means chasing after the things of this world for self-gratification, whether it be through cars, money, houses, sex, entertainment. We all want to live the good life. However, the sad reality is the good life isn't found in worldly things. You don't uh, love life and see good days because worldly pleasures are always fleeting and they never truly satisfy the heart. Think about an example in the Bible, Solomon. Solomon certainly had it all. He had uh, more money than anyone else. He had land and villas and houses and palaces and chariots and horses as king over Israel, he certainly had great power and influence. He had more wisdom and understanding beyond measure, the Bible says. He had notoriety, he had women, he had everything that people today would say that the good life must contain. In fact, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 9 says that when the queen of Sheba, who was no commoner herself, um, visit Solomon. She was so staggered by his immense wealth and power and posing presence. Scripture says that she was breathless. It literally took her breath right away to see all that he had. But was he content? Did he love life and see good days? Listen to Solomon's own words in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 17. So I hated life. 
Isn't that tragic? The man who had whatever he wanted says, I hated life. For all his vanity and striving after wind. You see, Solomon came to realize that the good life wasn't found in his earthly accomplishments, wasn't found in his earthly status as king. It wasn't discovered through his great intellect. He didn't find it in shallow pleasures or material possessions that he owned. No, rather, he says at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, as he looks back over his whole life, he says in the last chapter, remember also your creator. At the end, he said, remember God. <laughs> remember God. He says, in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, you don't want to wait for the end of your life to look back at it and realize all of it was for naught. Everything he bought, everything he owned, all that he experienced, in the end he found no pleasure in it. To really love life then and see good days is the life that remembers God and is set solely on pleasing Him. He should be our focus, God. So, in our verses today, Peter is going to give us a little bit of a summary writing about the good life. And he's writing to a group of, remember, persecuted Christians in the first century who certainly from a situational or human viewpoint were experiencing a very difficult life. Their life was not at all easy. They were hated. They were being falsely accused. They were being lit alive as human candles. They were being slandered against. They were under a people's purview who had no tolerance for the Christian faith at all. And yet Peter writes to them and says, whoever desires to love life and see good days in spite of your situation, here's what you need. Here's what you need. And he lists four direct, simple, practical points to really love life and to see good days. And we're going to cover two of them today. Next week, Lord willing, We'll finish the next. So the first thing, though, that he says in this group is you must have the right attitude. The first thing he points out to us is concerning our attitude. And will you please notice it's not a matter of the things that you possess. It's not the absence of problems. It's the attitude that we represent. Notice what Peter says, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Thank you, Brother Rogers. 
from the opening chapter of this epistle, you'll remember that Peter has declared the great realities of the gospel to us. Chapter 1 was all about and pointed to our glorious salvation in Christ. It was all about our salvation. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 11, you'll recall I said, there's a shift. And he applied this glorious salvation to the varied life relationships that we find ourselves in as, number one, citizens of the state, number two, as employees, and then last week, three, as spouses. And as a final conclusion to these applications, Peter now brings our attention, our attention to the calling in Christ Jesus as members of his church. So he begins in verse 8 by saying, and finally, all of you, all of you, he's no longer speaking to you if you're a citizen, he's no longer speaking to you whether you're an employer or employee, he's no longer speaking to you if you're a husband or a wife, all of you. And Peter lists five spiritual virtues or five attitudes of a faithful church, and the first phrase in verse 8, all of you should have unity of mind. The NAS translated, be harmonious, which is also a great translation of this meaning. It's the Greek word homophron, and it means to be of one mind or to think the same. Now, this isn't talking about a worldly unity this isn't talking about that we all like to dress alike, that we all like to eat the same kinds of foods, that we all like to listen to the same kind of music or wear the same kind of clothes. Or, no, those are all worldly preferences. There's grace in all those. This is something far deeper <laughs> and something much more important. This is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians find oneness and understanding in the gospel of the cross. This is despite our differences. This is despite our preferences. We are united in glorifying the one true Christ because we all deserve death, but we were purchased by the same blood, by the same Savior, by the same person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about what this unity actually looks like through the church in Ephesus. And he says in verses 1 through 6, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. He's urging the church. And, and, and they would have had lots of reasons to sit on one side or the other. Okay? Jews and Greeks. Very, very different. I urge you. He's a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. We got to have this stuff, beloved. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that unity that Paul talks so much about in the New Testament was the answered prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recall this from our time in the Gospel of John. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer it's referred to. Jesus prayed in verse 21 that we may all be one. And then look at how the Lord looked at the church. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. See how this is one body, Christ is the head. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is so supernatural, people wouldn't believe it. So you would know that you must be a child of God. And so it's got an evangelistic effect to it also. In Acts chapter 2, we see the commendation of the early church. They were all of one accord, all things in common with one another. Believers, true believers, are to live in harmony with one another, maintaining a common commitment to the truth that produces an inward unity of the heart. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And then I want to, while we're in Philippians chapter 2, I read this earlier, therefore if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Huh. What should we be intent on, Paul? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay? Again, the Lord is our perfect example, and we walk in his steps. If you want to love life and see good days, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then number two, don't live your life conceited and selfish, but with humility of mind regarding others more than yourselves. So, 
Peter says, number one, all of you have unity of mind. And then the second thing he lists is sympathy. Have unity of mind and be sympathetic. This actually means to suffer with someone. To suffer with someone. We should be united on the truth. Okay? United on the truth, but also ready to sympathize with the pain of others, even those we don't know. We should be known as sympathetic. We must understand the fallenness of humanity and find it in our hearts to show the world sympathy. We should be like our Savior, who in Hebrews 4, again, is our example. He is our high priest, sympathized with our weaknesses. We must rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We should be known not as indifferent to the world, not to be known as the critic of the world, not as those who individually damn people, but showing compassion to the pain of the lost. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and Jesus, Jesus is our example, went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go out into the Lord's harvest. And we are those who are laborers. We want to come alongside those who are harassed and helpless and loving sympathy. We share with them the truth of the gospel, the hope that there is in Christ. For, beloved, we know salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You, you don't send truth away in exchange for only showing them sympathy and compassion. That's not loving anyone. Our third phrase we see is brotherly love. Philadelphos in the Greek, it it really uh, should be translated like uh, hyphenated as brother love. <laughs> Some brother love right there for you. And it has to do with the affection for those close to us. We all know what a brother is. But brotherly love is that which is demonstrated in our unselfish service to one another. Okay. This brotherly love, of course, starts here in the church. It starts here. It starts with us loving one another. But it extends even beyond that. We're reminded of what Jesus said again in John chapter 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He has loved us eternally. He has loved us perfectly. He has loved us sacrificially. As I have loved you, love one another. And then here's the effect this love has. By this, 
Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it starts here, but if we do it well, it will affect out there. Okay? And can I kindly remind you, this is a command by our Lord. You can't love God and hate your brother. <laughs> you, you just can't. 1 John 4.20 tells us, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The simple fact is, brothers and sisters that, that have love for God and love for man, it goes hand in hand. This way and this way. Scripture is super clear on that. One cannot exist without the other. We are children of our Heavenly Father, and therefore brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we have been loved by God, so we must love our fellow believers, brother love. The fourth term Peter uses here is a tender heart. And that means exactly what it says. A tender heart, um, sometimes it's translated better, um, compassionate. To show compassion. And you might have noticed each of these graces reflect the love Christ has for us. All of them. It's seen in Christ for us. And none of them might be clearer, in fact, than the case of compassion or compassionate. For was it not God who has in Christ shown us the greatest compassion? In Ephesians 4, 32, such compassion was rooted in the mercy we experience when he has forgiven us of our sins. Peter exhorts us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See how he links it? Just as you've experienced it in Christ, surely this is the tender heart of God who himself was so compassionate towards us sinners. In fact, so compassionate was our Lord that when he saw the brokenness that sin had created all around him and his dear friends Mary and Martha and John were, were weeping over their, their brother Lazarus' death and, and around the tomb, it says in his spirit he was so greatly troubled that Jesus what? He wept. The Son of God had such compassion and such a tender heart that he wept. Imagine that. To the final phrase in verse 8, a humble mind. It's really one word in the Greek, humble-minded. This is exactly what it means, nothing more, meek. Humble-minded. And uh, may I suggest to you that humility is arguably one of the most essential, all-encompassing virtues of the Christian's life. Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 13, really captures this uh, humility for us. Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, 
humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you, so you also must do. Okay? James 4, 6, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Jesus Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of course, we just read Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Same root word. Let each esteem others better than himself. And what did Jesus say at the end of Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Beloved, this is God's calling for all of us. All of us. Always united. Always sympathetic. Always eager to love one another. Always tender-hearted. Always humble. And where do we see all of these virtues most truly exemplified? Jesus Christ. And who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross? Jesus Christ. He was meek and lonely of heart. He loved the unlovely with compassion. He was gentle with the fallen. He cared about broken lives, broken hearts, broken homes. This is to be the attitude of every Christian. Every Christian is to have the same attitude and mind as Christ. So, no matter how difficult the circumstances in which we live, we are to be um, peacemakers in, in disposition. We are to be sympathetic, uh, sympathetic and, and certainly sensitive to the pain of people. We're to be sacrificial in our serving united in our believing, loving one another the way Christ loved us, and we are to bear the spirit of humility. This is the attitude that Peter calls for in every situation. You want to love life and see good days? Have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus. It takes just a little bit more than the right attitude, though. Secondly, it takes having the right response. This is so important. Having the right response to evil. Notice what it says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless instead. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. If you want to love life and see good days, we have to have the right response when, when evil comes our way. Okay? When we experience evil. For these early believers to whom Peter is writing to, they were facing revilers, unjust uh, treatment, persecution, social, every social rejection you can imagine. But here Peter says the right response is do not retaliate, do not seek revenge. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. This word evil here, the... Uh, Kakos in the Greek, it denotes the inherent quality of evil, not just the evil act, the, the inherent evil that we possess in, 
when we are unchanged by the power of the gospel, that inherent evil acts out. And so when someone does evil to you or has an evil disposition toward you, don't stoop to their level and retaliate like an unsafe person. This is a uh, basic spiritual principle, right? Sure is. Uh, we return to Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 38. The Lord said, you have heard it said, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, respond like you're a child of your heavenly father. <laughs> respond in such a way somebody will say, hey, they must belong to God. There's no way someone would act that way. He must be a child of God. Christ acted that way. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, the apostle Paul continues on the teaching of Jesus he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So don't retaliate. Don't be uh, vengeful. And we see this throughout the whole New Testament. First Thessalonians 5, 15, same, same thing. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And then in verse 9, Peter adds a second statement. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Or in other words, don't return insult for insult. He moves now to the, um, to the verbal, the verbal realm, right? You are not only to do evil and, and vengeful acts against somebody. You are not to retaliate with your tongue. And boy, can these be tough, right? These are tough. Somebody lashes out on you, our flesh. What do we want to do? We want to retaliate. We want to lash right back, don't we? Feels good. This term uh, reviling here means to verbally abuse, to, to rail against somebody. You see, if, if you're going to, to love life and see good days, it starts by having the right attitude, an attitude of peace, unity, sympathy, compassion, love, humility. You see, that's a, a person, no matter what the circumstances are, is going to love life and see good days. It's very difficult to upset that kind of a person. And, and when they're treated unkindly and experience unjust suffering, they will not repay evil for evil. They don't engage in insult for insult. And consequently, their hearts are more at peace. <coughs> Your mind's at peace. 
not worrying about how you're going to avenge them. <laughs> no hatred is brewing and bubbling in your heart. We all know what that's like. We're not raging up into anger. It's not welling up with, within us. If you really want to love life and see good and joyful, fulfilling, meaningful days, then deal with the right attitude and the right response when facing worldly fallenness in the matters of life. There were times when Jesus was silent. Sometimes there was nothing coming out this time. I'll keep my mouth closed. We got to do that sometimes. That's an example. Saw that all during his trial. He was silent. He would not say something. There are also times when Jesus spoke. And he spoke, spoke righteously. He spoke truth and judgment. And he confronted the religious leaders multiple, multiple times in John. We saw how he did that. So we have those examples as well. But he committed no sin, First Peter tells us. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Chapter 2, verse 23. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his heavenly Father. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will repay. He will repay. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that we might follow in his steps. So he showed us how to do it. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, telling to the church how he's responded to the world around him. I mean, Paul really got dragged through the ringer. He said, when we were reviled, we blessed. We blessed those who reviled against us. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we answered kindly. <laughs> this is a valuable spiritual discipline not easy but incredibly valuable incredibly valuable now both paul and peter say when we are reviled we bless them give them a blessing instead they both say that what what, what are we to say oh bless you thank you thank you for reviling against me Thank you for that name that you called me. Thank you for sinning against me. Bless you. Oh, be blessed. Is that what? <laughs> what, what, what does this mean? To, to, I appreciate you. I love you. What does it mean to give a, a blessing? I mean, I'm not a priest. I can't say, oh, bless you, my son, like the priest, you know. I mean, I can't pronounce an actual blessing onto their life. So when he says, on the contrary, bless instead, what does this mean here? Well, this term translated bless is the term from which we actually get the English word eulogy. A eulogy from. To praise or to speak well of. A lot of churches will have their eulogy that they read, a confession of faith, of, of praise. But, but how does this apply here? Let me make a couple suggestions to you. How are we to bless those who revile us? Number one would be to love them unconditionally. How do we do that? Okay, how do we do that? Well, that was back in Matthew chapter 5. We just read it a few minutes ago. Jesus said in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Okay, there it is. Love your enemies. When you love your enemies, you're fulfilling the injunction of not repaying evil for an evil, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. We're fulfilling that with, with this verse. 
Okay, but now when we say, what's the practical application? How do I live this out? Okay, how do I love my enemy? Obviously, each situation's uh, unique, but essentially, you're to seek a means to serve them in some way, to bless them in some kind of a way. If you want to turn an enemy into a friend or possibly a brother, find a way to serve them. I'll never forget when I was younger, my dad had a sign on one of his businesses and it said, kill him with kindness. And the idea was that a lot of times in the service business, you deal with customers that are really angry and you haven't done nothing to them. And you're like, how are you doing? And they unload on you. They've had a bad day. They, they, they think your haircut looks funny. What's a dumb kid doing in front of me? Wh whatever it is. And so the first thing that as a, an unregenerated teenager I wanted to do was say, you know, you want to fight and you, you're combating them. Kill them with kindness was that, oh, bless you. Oh, I can see you're having a bad day. How can I help you? Bring the volume down, tune it down, serve them, love them, love them. Katie told me she used to do it all the time when she was a, a teenager working the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts. People would be driving through at 4.30 in the morning, really angry that they're up. And they would shout, shout out an order at her. And she killed them with kindness. There you go, sir. I hope you have a great day. All big smiles. And, and they're like, oh, uh, thanks. Okay. You know, that's the idea here. To, to love, to serve, to not repay evil with evil, to not revile when reviled. A second thing I'd suggest is I'd be praying for their salvation. <laughs> That's what the rest of Matthew 5, verse 44 says. Not only to love your enemies, but pray for those who persecute you. If someone treats you with hostility, with, with this ugliness, we need to be praying for their salvation, or if they claim to be saved, certainly their spiritual growth. <laughs> but praying for them. We're praying for and seeking an opportunity to get close enough to them to lovingly share the life-transforming power of the gospel. They don't need just their behavior change. The first thing that they need is open heart surgery from the great physician himself. This isn't about fixing your attitude. You need a new heart, buddy. You need a new heart. So we bless them lovingly in service. We bless them through prayer. And then finally, and probably the most crucial, we are to forgive them. That's the right response, to forgive them. In fact, no other response is tolerable. That's what we're commanded to do. And that is very clear from the end of even verse 9 here. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is a remarkable statement, and let me expound on it for a little bit. For to this you were called. That's your election to salvation. Election to salvation. This word translated call is the word kaleo. means to call, to summon, to invite. For to this you were called to your salvation that you may obtain a blessing. Now, listen to this thought. This calling was a free gift from God. Free gift from God. You were elected to receive a free gift. The implication is 
It was a gift that you didn't what? Deserve. Gift you didn't deserve. This is a gift you couldn't earn. It was a gift without merit. And you were elect by God that you may inherit a blessing. That's what the word obtain means. It means to inherit. And the point is, is we don't repay evil for evil. On the contrary, we bless them instead. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We forgive those who sin against us. Why? For to this, you have been called. You've been called to this, you see. You see, you also once were God's enemy. You've broken God's laws. You've profaned God's holy name. Your days were spent in evil. And instead of God giving you what you deserved, he called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He gave you mercy when you didn't deserve mercy. He's shown you grace when you did not deserve grace. Has God not also forgiven you when you were undeserving? Should we not know well how to freely forgive those who are also undeserving? That's the point. That's the point. We offended God. Did he give us what we deserved? No. This is a humbling truth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and we'll close with these verses. Matthew 18, verse 21. And uh, I want to show you an illustration of this, and we'll bring this, this thing to a close. Uh, parable of the unforgiving servant. Begins with Peter asking the Lord a question on forgiveness. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you see, the Jews had a, a rule. They said, If you forgive him up to seven times, after that, you get to get him. <laughs> So Peter thought he was really impressing the Lord with how much he had learned and he was going to double the Jewish standard and add another one just to be sure. And I think he expected the Lord to pat him on the back and say, oh, no, Peter, I mean, you don't have to go that high. <laughs> but Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but 77 times. Then Jesus tells them this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's an unimaginable sum. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, 
The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Talk about compassionate. Wow. He forgave him the entire debt. 10,000 talents. That would be like the, the national debt of, of Galilee. Just an unthinkable amount. So verse uh, 28 says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's, that's like a hundred days work. Peanuts compared to the 10,000 talents. So he found the guy and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay back to me what you owe me. <laughs> so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, not you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whoa. You get the point? Right? How in the world could you, who owed God an unthinkable, an unpayable, an uncountable debt, who received so much compassion, and forgiveness from him, and then we turn around to our fellow man, repaying him evil for evil, choking him after God has just forgiven you. So we are to be marked as forgiving people. And why, you ask? Because Christ has forgiven you. Christ has forgiven you, but Christ has forgiven you. So how much more should we forgive those who have sinned against us? Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless instead. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing word translated obtain or to inherit. It's the word kleimarao. It means to receive something you can't earn. Our salvation encapsulates that. We are God's elect. We are the called out ones. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, it was a blessing that we can't earn. It was something that we didn't deserve. It was according to the riches of his grace through his blood. So, beloved, I ask you, should we not also forgive those who have sinned against us? This is what you've been called for. Peter says, if you want to love life and see good days, have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. Have this response which was in Christ Jesus for you. And next week, Lord willing, we will see if we can continue to trust in God, namely having the right authority in God's word and having the right incentive for as verse 12 tells us, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Do as Christ did. Keep entrusting yourself to the Father. Keep entrusting yourself. We, we all want the good life. But it takes the right standard, the right motive, the right authority, and the right, ascensive, as, as the right incentive to achieve it. As next week we'll see, it involves entrusting in God, who is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father on high. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Remember, beloved, and his ears are open to their prayers. If uh, you are in need of prayer this morning or if you have any questions concerning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, be happy to talk and pray with you. Would you please stand as we sing the song of invitation, I Will Rise.